Um, if you ever thought, you know, many times as Christians, we want others to come to faith in Christ. We want others to hear the gospel. We want them to be saved, and we want them to believe in Jesus because we know what Jesus has done for us. We know what good news the gospel is. But one of the things that often is going on among churches is trying to figure out how to get more people to hear and how to get more people to believe in Christ. And so there are various strategies that churches come up with. Okay? Now, I think sometimes the, the danger of some of those strategies is that the strategy is based on figuring out what will attract people. In other words, you know, if the pastor dresses in ripped jeans and an Abercrombie and Fitch t shirt, then he'll look cool. That might not work for me, but for some pastors, he'll look cool, and uh, then, you know, he'll attract cool people and they'll want to be saved. Or, on the other hand, you know, if, if we decide that there's certain things in the Bible that our culture doesn't like so much, there's some commandments in the Bible that our culture doesn't like so much, and if we decide that, you know what, commands, you know, against immorality and commands against, you know, various things, that the, our culture doesn't like that, that's not politically expedient today, uh, you know, if you want to be accepted in the culture, and so, you know, let's just minimize those things. Let's not talk about some things the Bible talks about. Because if we do, then it's going to offend people, and so uh, there are many churches that will take that approach. Or they'll get on whatever the latest fad is. What is the latest fad in our church, in, you know, in, in Christian circles or in our culture? And, and I've seen this. Um, uh, years ago, I was in New York, and uh, uh, there was a boy band group. This will date how long ago it was, at the time called NSYNC, Okay. And NSYNC was having a concert in New York City. I did not go, okay, just in case you were wondering that. Um, I went to the one in Orlando. No, I'm kidding. I never went to an NSYNC concert, never. But um, the, they were having, and, and someone had printed up tracks to hand out outside the concert. I don't remember where it was, whether it was in Madison Square Garden or somewhere, that said, are you NSYNC with Jesus? Well, so what they're trying to do is, is build off the popularity of this group and get people to try to you know, accept Jesus because they like NSYNC. And so I'm going to say that the reason people don't come to faith in Christ, as we're going to see from this passage, doesn't have to do with the fact that we didn't present it in a cool enough way. It doesn't have to do with, you know, whether I'm wearing a tie or whether I'm wearing a cool t-shirt isn't going to make somebody come to faith in Christ. Okay? Whether, whether I... And certainly, minimizing the Word of God which the Spirit uses isn't going to make somebody come to faith in Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So by toning down the Word of God, we're not going to bring more people to Christ. All right? If you, if you like, you know, a, a certain style and you want to dress a certain way and it's not immodest and it doesn't disobey Scripture, okay, fine. Um, but don't, don't think that something is going to say, well, you know, if I wear this kind of t-shirt that's popular now, I'll be able to tell people about Jesus. Well, that's not going to be the thing, Okay? Sometimes we think that's the thing. That's not going to be the thing that does it. First, Second Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we faint not. Now, what ministry is he talking about? He's talking about what he had talked about in chapter 3. And his ministry was, one, that he, was, he had suffered sometimes for the cause of Christ. And two, that in this process, he had been a minister of the New Testament... Okay, and so since we have this ministry, let's kind of track this for a second. So what happens? Adam and Eve were created. They're put in the Garden of Eden to bring God glory. They failed to do that. They sinned against God. 
And they fell short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They came short of God's glory. Later, God sends Moses. Moses gives the people God's law. But the people don't keep it. They, build, they make a golden calf. They do all those things. And so when Moses sees the glory of God and he comes down, he has to put a veil over his face because the people have fallen short of keeping that, that uh, law. But here in the ministry of Paul, what Paul is saying is that he now has a ministry that's empowered by the Spirit of God. So the weakness of the Old Testament law was not that the commandments were bad, but that people didn't have a heart to keep it because they didn't have a spirit to, that making them alive to follow Christ, to follow the truth of the, of the gospel. And so now, here he has, here is Paul who, with unveiled face, with open face, not a veiled face like, like Moses, but an unveiled face, so that people can see God's glory and are therefore drawn to it. See, this is interesting because what this is telling us is that in the work of the gospel, God and the Spirit, the Spirit uses the proclamation of the gospel and that unveiled face of the glory of God to bring people to faith in Christ. Since we, therefore, therefore, building off of what he had said in chapter 3, seeing we have this ministry of proclaiming this new covenant, as we've received mercy, he's saying he received mercy, we faint not. In other words, we don't give up, we keep going. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestations of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so here's what he's saying. We're not doing what the false apostles are doing. Okay, the false apostles that were tricking the Corinthians. He's saying we're not doing what they were doing. We're, we're going to renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, and not walk in craftiness, nor handle the word of God deceitfully. He said, we're not trying to be clever and trying to come up with ways to beguile you into following us. All right, Now, there are plenty of people even today who do this kind of thing. All right, So, for example, um, it, it, I, I'm sorry, it's such low-hanging fruit, but it's just an easy illustration. And that is, you know, the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Uh, one of the best known preachers from it, he has one of the largest churches in America, is Joel Osteen. But Joel Osteen, if you ever listen to him, if, see, see, here's the thing. There are a lot of people out there that have figured out that if they talk God talk, a lot of Christians will listen to it. But you, you have to not only hear what they say, but what they don't say. Okay? And if you've ever heard, I've a few times watched one of the broadcasts of Joel Osteen, one of the things you'll find is he hardly ever says Jesus. He'll talk about God all the time and how God's going to help you and make your life better, but he leaves Jesus out a lot, most of the time. Why? Because he knows that he's on television and he gets a wider audience of people listening to him if he doesn't mention Jesus because there's people out there who aren't Christian who have some kind of God view that have, you know, they like the idea of God and God watching out for them, but they're not Christian. And so by saying Jesus, you narrow your audience. He doesn't want to narrow his audience. And so therefore he backs off of saying something that the Bible clearly says, okay, and you know what, that, according to this passage and according to what Paul's saying here, that marks him as a false apostle not a preacher of the gospel. Now, all of us as pastors are sometimes tempted to say, hmm, do I really want to say that? But you know what? We're called by God to preach a particular message, not to make the message. 
Okay, We're called by God to preach what the gospel says and what the word of God says, not, not to make the message. As, uh, last week, I thank you uh, for uh, praying for me as I was out of town. I had the chance to preach at a church that I had served as an assistant pastor at many years ago. And while I was there, the, the pastor that's there has often said this. I've quoted, uh, he probably wasn't original with him either, but I've quoted him on it many times, and that is, I'm in sales, not in management. In other words, I don't make the policies. God made them. All I do is tell you what they are and, and try to tell you what, what the good news of the gospel is. Not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. Manifest the truth. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, there's nothing they could point at Paul and say, see, he's just doing this for the money. And honestly, there, there are people out there that they have, a, they have a gospel of glory that says, you know, the bigger the church, the more, the more faithful it is. Because obviously God has blessed it. So if you have a big church with big offerings coming in, God must be blessing you. But that's not biblical. Okay? In other words, and is Disney being blessed by God for their work? They got a lot of people and a lot of money coming in. My point is they're not in gospel work, so it's not, we're not saying God's blessing it. We're just saying they have a business model that's successful. And the fact that some churches have a successful business model doesn't mean they're faithful. That doesn't mean our church tries to be small. We want to reach as many people as we can. But on the other hand, we don't decide that I'm going to change uh, the way I approach preaching the gospel so that more people will find it acceptable. And so in other words, what he's saying here is commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So then the question that's being brought up is, why is it that some people don't listen to you? In other words, the the false apostles would say, Paul, if you're really sent from God, why is it that some people don't listen? Why don't you have more results? Why don't you see more of God's blessing? Let me draw your attention to an Old Testament example. All right? Think of the prophet Jonah. How many people responded to his preaching? Tens of thousands. Is he a model of faithfulness? No, he runs away from God. He's mad that God's going to keep his word and not judge the people from Nineveh. He's not a model of faithfulness. Okay? Now let's pick many of the other Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, what does God say to him? You go and preach, and these people are going to have hard hearts and they're not going to listen to you. Jeremiah, they throw him in jail for preaching the truth. Okay? So when you stand before God and and these men receive reward for their service, do you want to be Jonah or Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah faithfully did what God told him to do. He didn't have as many results. He didn't have tens of thousands of people listen to him. Now, that doesn't mean that faithfulness will always mean no results. All I'm saying is the results aren't the determination. Faithfulness to the truth is the determination. But if the gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Why? Why do they, why do they not hear it? In other words, for those of us who are believers, we think of the gospel and go, this is such good news. I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see to quote the famous hymn. But that, that, that hymn is making allusion to all kinds of scriptural references. A lost sheep, 
A blind man who's healed by Jesus. In other words, I know I was this way. I was a lost sinner and now I'm saved by the grace of God. God worked. And I know it. And God could do that for you too. In other words, in just just a few minutes, a moment ago, I mentioned the rewards that Jonah or Jeremiah might get. But I hope you didn't get the wrong idea. I didn't mean by that that Jonah and Jeremiah have somehow earned uh, heaven by what they did. The Bible tells us very clearly that there's none righteous, no, not one. None that understand, there's none that seek after God. None of us naturally are righteous people who can have a standing before God. All of us are sinners. Every one of us. I say that with myself wholly, uh, wholeheartedly included in that. What do I mean by sinner? Sin is an unusual word. We don't use it that frequently in our society today. Um, as I've often said, we, we, when we see it, it's often in marketing. You know, sinfully good chocolate or something like that. In other words, this chocolate's so good it must be wrong to eat it. Um, and that's the way we often use the word. And, and if you were to ask the average man on the street kind of thing, what is sin, um, they wouldn't give you a very good definition of it. They might come up with something here or there, you know. If they even said doing bad things, they would be doing well. They'd probably come up with, you know, something, uh, or they really wouldn't even know. Um, and so, it's just not a word we use that frequently in our culture. But the basic idea, sin is rebelling against God. Um, or as a famous theologian defined it, cosmic treason. Here's the God of the universe, and we're saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't care um, what you've said, God. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I, in fact, I don't think you should be God. I think I should be. Now, you may not say it that way, but there are a lot of people. How many people have you heard say things like, when I get to heaven, there's a few things I have to talk to God about? I've heard people say that, you know, why this happened or why that happened in life. Lots of people think that way. In other words, they're saying, God's going to be accountable to me someday. That's the very heart of sin, that kind of autonomy that says we can exist without God. In other words, in the garden, here's the serpent saying, if you'll eat this fruit, it's not just that the fruit tastes really good, but if you'll eat it, what's really the reason God doesn't want you to eat it is you'll know like what God knows and he feels threatened by you. You could be equal to God if you eat this. That's the heart of sin. To say, I'm going to run my own life. I'm going to do it my way. And, and what happens is that brings God's just condemnation. We're not just, it's not just an oops, I made a mistake. It's a God, you don't deserve to be God, and I'll do it right. Get out of my way. That's why we call it cosmic treason sometimes. That's the very heart of sin. That kind of autonomy that says, I'm going to run my own life. This is why we love the things that give us autonomy, right? Lots of money. If you have a lot of money, you can live apart from rules other people have to follow. It's not wrong to have money. God blesses some people with money. Some godly people like Abraham in history were blessed with a lot of money and they used it to the glory of God. There have been uh, people here. I remember talking on the phone to a man who was uh, fairly well known in our community who was worth quite a bit of money. And uh, he supported one of the missionaries we supported and he said, brother, he said, years ago God convicted me that I make a lot of money and I should give 90% of my income to the Lord. And he was given 90% of his income. Instead of 10%, he was giving 90%. Because he made millions every year. And, and he decided, I've got enough. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but that's what God laid on his heart. He used the money to glorify God. Okay? And so I'm not preaching against money, but sometimes the reason money is so appealing is because it offers an autonomy, a freedom. It, it appeals to our sinful heart to say, you can do what you want if you have enough money. 
All right? You know, this is unfortunately... You know, so for example, this is why Hollywood people can get away with living outrageous lives a little bit. I don't mean get away spiritually, but I mean they don't pay the same price other people pay. Because if you're worth millions of dollars and you do something that's foolish and you get sick, you can pay the best doctors to help you. But if you're a working class person and you, you, you abuse the same drug, you ruin your life. See, the money helps them buy a way out in some cases. Not a way out of God's condemnation, not a way out of ultimately, but it, it can mediate it. It can mitigate it. And so people want that. I can sin and mitigate it. Okay, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. Um, it, it, I, I, want you to be, I want to be clear on that. But what I am saying is that sometimes people desire it, and our sinful hearts desire these things because it gives us the autonomy that we want, to be apart from God, to live apart from God. But yet, when we've rebelled against God like that, God in his justice has said that that is worthy of condemnation. Not because God is some kind of bully who wants to, uh, wants to show us we can't cross him, but because he's just. And that, have you ever thought about this? When you sin, it doesn't just affect you. If somebody gets drunk and gets behind the wheel of a car, often it doesn't just impact them. They often run it into somebody else's property or take somebody else's life. So their drunkenness didn't just impact them, it impacted somebody else. If somebody steals, that just doesn't influence them. It influences the person who just lost property. Okay, We can go through all kinds of sins like that and show that it, it, it's never just really about me, probably. And so because of that, God looking at this and he's just, he says, this deserves condemnation. But you know, the good news of the gospel is this. Even though we don't have a righteousness of our own and we don't have a righteous standing of our own, we can't have a righteous standing of our own, the good news of the gospel is this. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to to take on our humanity. Unlike us, he lived a perfectly righteous life he never sinned. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then he went to a cross. Now why did he die on a cross? The wages of sin is death. Why did he die since he never sinned? Well, he wasn't dying for his sins. He died because our sins were laid on him and by his stripes we were healed. He bore your sins and my sins in his body on that tree and he died for our sins. And he died and was put in a grave. But three days later, on that first day of the week, he rose because it was not possible for death to keep him. He was the very God of all the universe. And he was perfectly righteous. He didn't deserve death. And so he came out of the grave. And he ever lives, offering us eternal life for those who will come in repentant faith to him. By repentance, I don't, again, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Jeremiah didn't earn a standing before God because he was faithful. It was by God's grace, just like by, for us. And in the same way, repentance is not penance. It's not undoing, doing good things to undo the bad I've done. What it is, is it's saying, I've been loyal to myself and to sin, and I need to turn from that and turn to Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the only hope of eternal life that I have. But why is it when we hear this beautiful gospel that even though we're condemned, there's the love of God is poured out to us and that he gave his only son to die on the cross for our sins, and that if you'll come to him in repentant faith, he'll in no wise cast you out. Why is it when we hear that beautiful truth of the gospel, why is it that some people don't receive it? Verse 4 tells us, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. Satan has worked. Okay? He has worked to blind people. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, 
who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In other words, guess what? Moses came down and he had a veil over his face so everybody couldn't see God's glory. Paul's coming with unveiled face, showing the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel, but they're still not seeing it, not because there's a veil over Paul, but because there's a veil over their eyes, because they're blinded to it. In other words, wearing torn jeans and an Abercrombie Fitch t-shirt is not going to take the blindness away from people's eyes. Stopping preaching what the Bible clearly says isn't going to take the blindness away from people's eyes. You know what takes the blindness away from people's eyes? The very work of the Spirit of God. Verse 17, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's verse 17 of chapter 3. The liberty from that blindness comes by the Spirit of God. In other words, unless the Spirit is working in somebody's heart, that blindness is there. There has to be conviction from the Spirit of God, or else their human reasoning is going to go, this doesn't make any sense to me. I want it the way I want it. But when the Spirit takes that blindness away, you know what they do? They embrace the beauty of the Gospel, because the Gospel does make sense. It just doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and are your, our, ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. So here's what he's saying. I haven't, he's saying, I've had to defend my ministry against these false apostles, but not because I want to preach myself, but because I want to preach Jesus who I've preached. In other words, what he's saying is, if I don't tell you that my ministry has been from God, and you follow their ministry, you turn away from Jesus. So I have to tell you that I was sent by God so that you'll hear Jesus, because I'm preaching Jesus. And it's Jesus who they need to see. It's the glory of Christ. The glorious gospel of Christ. That is the light they need to see. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. So guess what? When you can't see, you know what you need? Light. You need to see the light, right? I remember going to my eye doctor when I was 40 years old. And I had a pretty good eye exam. All right, thank the Lord. I had a good eye exam. She said, no, no diseases or anything. Your, your vision's good. You don't need corrective lenses. And she said, but the next time you come see me, you'll probably need something. I said, really? She said, yeah. After 40, your eyes will change and you won't be able to see as well. Now, I can still, I don't wear glasses still. Sometimes I need longer arms. But my eyes are fine. Sometimes my children will hand me something. To, hey, Dad, look at this. And they put it here. I'm like, no, 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 no. My eyes can't focus at that distance. They could 20 years ago, but they can't anymore. Why? Because my eyes change, right? And so when, when you start having issues where you can't see as well, all right, you need, and I find this now, you know, I, stuff that I used to be able to read, I'm like, it's too dim here. Let me go get in the sunlight over by this window and I can see it. I either need to put my reading glasses on or I need to go get more light, one or the other. But I could see that 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But I can't see it now. Why? Because my eyes have changed. We live in a fallen world and our bodies decay and that's the way it works. Um, and, but what's, what my point here is that sometimes I need light to see what I need to see. So here's what he's saying. For God commended the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. All right? If you've come to faith in Christ, God shined that light into your heart so you could see the beauty of the gospel and you would believe in Jesus. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now look at this. 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where is it that we see the glory of God today? In the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's not a cloud that comes and hovers over our building when we worship like happened in the, in the Old Testament. When they dedicate the temple in Solomon's day and that, that dwelling glory. You, sometimes you've maybe heard this word Shekinah glory. Shekinah isn't a, a word in our English Bibles, but Shekinah comes from the Hebrew word that means to dwell. It's the dwelling glory of God. All right, so here's God comes and dwells in a special way over that temple. Uh, the glory of God, that glory cloud, came and, and hovered over the temple, showing God's presence there. All right, now we know God is everywhere. All right, you know, there's nowhere you can go to get away from God. We know that. But the fact was, he was showing his blessing and acceptance on that. But here's what we're saying today you, you don't go somewhere to see a cloud to see the glory of God, you look at the face of Christ. You hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's in the face of Christ that the glory of God is shown. See, here's where God's justice and God's love meet. God's justice is satisfied in what Jesus accomplished, and God's love is evident by what Jesus did. I heard a man recently say, you know, that he gave up on the idea of preaching that God brutalized his son for us. In other words, he's saying he found it repulsive, the idea that Jesus would die for us. That it was just cosmic child abuse. Here's the issue with that. You're completely misunderstanding the plan of salvation. And that is, it's not like Jesus went, oh, I, I, guess, I, I guess this is the Father's plan and I've got to go along with it. This was the plan of all three members of the triune Godhead in all eternity. Jesus willingly went to the cross. What did he tell Peter? Don't you know that I could call thousands of angels to come and rescue me? But I'm choosing to willingly do this. This wasn't a a grown man brutalizing a little boy. This was a father and son who came up with a plan to save us. And there are many times we find self-sacrifice noble. Okay? I mean, you, you think about this. There are times that some of you have served in the armed forces. You know, a grenade gets thrown into a group of soldiers and one of them dives on it so that they don't all get killed by the grenade. One of them gives his life for it. And what do we usually do? Do we say, why did those other soldiers let him do that? They're just murderous people. They should have all died so he didn't, you know, have to sacrifice himself. No, we look at that and we go, that was a noble sacrifice and we, we often give them a medal. Right, And we talk about what a brave, noble thing that was to do. And maybe even if it's not in a, a military setting, but if it's in another setting, there's a child, a, a woman notices her toddler has walked out into the street and she runs out there and throws her toddler out of the way and she herself gets hit by the vehicle and rushed to the hospital because she's injured. We say, what a loving mother who protected her child. But yet when Jesus willingly sacrifices himself, we say, what kind of God is that? So because when you have blinded eyes, you don't see the beauty of the truth of the gospel of Christ. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now in just a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. This passage I felt like was really appropriate to preach before a Lord's Supper because it's, it's so gospel-oriented. For those of us who've come to faith in Christ, whose, whose eyes have been opened to see, the, to see, as it says here, 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? We come to this, and it's good for our souls to think about what Christ has done for us, how God sent his only son to take on our humanity and to die on the cross, for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for us so that we could have eternal life. I'm just going to look very briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to invite you to be participate in this Lord's Supper with us if you meet a few qualifications. I don't say these to be elitist or to try to exclude people. I just say these because there are pastoral warnings in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. He's saying, you're, you're coming together and you're calling it the Lord's Supper, but it's not. Some of you are eating a huge meal and overeating, and some of you are even getting drunk, and then the poor are coming and they haven't had enough to eat, and they're seeing scraps of food left and they haven't had anything to eat. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? Ye shall, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. In other words, you're not considering your brothers and sisters in the congregation. In other words, there's a body of Christ. Yes, this represents the body of Christ, but there's a body of Christ around us right here too. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in, he says? Then he says, now let me remind you what I gave you before. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Jesus, the same night he was betrayed, took bread. They were observing that Passover. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Break this bread. This is, this is the body. This represents the body of Christ. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as, you, as, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, it's the manner in which it's being eaten. It's not whether you're worthy. Okay, there's some denominations that say you have to go through some ritual before you're worthy. In other words, you have to go to confession or you have to do something. Like that. That's not what this is talking about. Unworthily is the manner. In other words, if you get drunk before you take the Lord's Supper, that's an unworthy manner. If you're neglecting the brothers and sisters around you, that's an unworthy manner to observe the Lord's Supper. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, this represents the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now notice he doesn't say not discerning the Lord's body and blood. He says not discerning his body, because they weren't discerning the body of Christ within the church of Corinth around them. And they were neglecting it. For this caused many and weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. He says some of you got sick, some even died because you abused the Lord's Supper. So having said that, there is a warning here. So I want to invite you to be a part of this. It's good for our souls if we know the Lord. It's good for our souls to observe this Lord's Supper. <clears throat> but first of all, I want to invite you to be a part if you know the Lord as your Savior. If you've never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and you're not a follower in Jesus Christ, you can't do this in remembrance of Christ because you're not understanding what Jesus did. You can't do it in remembrance of him. Second, that you have been baptized by immersion after your salvation. Now, I'm not doing this to be selective, but we believe as Baptists that <clears throat> the right way for baptism to be done is by immersion and that it should be a believer who's being baptized, not an infant or someone else. And so if you haven't yet been baptized, I encourage you to be baptized um, and profess faith in Christ publicly. You may, have already, you may already know the Lord and profess faith in Christ, but to do so, this is the way the New Testament commands us to do it publicly. 
So that's what you need to do first before you consider the Lord's Supper. Third, that you are a member of a church of like faith and practice. It doesn't have to be a Baptist church. It needs to be a Bible-preaching church. And by that, what I mean is there are some people out there that refuse to join a church because they don't want the accountability. And second, there are people out there who, um, who have been disciplined out of a church because there's some sin they refuse to turn from. If that's the case for you, the best thing to do would be to uh, become accountable to a church or to make it right with the church that removed you from its membership before you go and take the Lord's Supper. And then fourth, that you have an orderly Christian walk. And this is, uh, maybe you were saved here at Calvary Baptist Church, baptized here at Calvary Baptist Church. Maybe you're a member here at Calvary Baptist Church, but there's some sin you're cherishing that you refuse to repent of. You say, no, I'm going to keep doing that. I know God says not to, but I plan to keep doing that. It would be better for you to pass these elements along. I'm not saying, did you sin this past week? We all did. And if you sin, you confess it and you say, Lord, I plan by your grace to fight this sin and keep going forward for you. Great. Amen. But if you say, you know, Lord, I'm embezzling from my employer and I kind of need that money and I have no intent to stop doing that, then your best bet would be here not to take the Lord's Supper because of the warnings that are in this passage. Okay, that's just one example. But at this time, we're going to serve the Lord's Supper. Obviously, it says if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged in verse 31. Nobody's going to come tap you on the shoulder and say, why were you taking this? So this is between your conscience and the Lord. And so we'll invite you, uh, invite our our deacons at this time to come forward so we can serve the Lord's Supper and uh, invite you to participate with us if uh, your conscience will allow you based on these, these descriptions of this passage from the Word of God.